0: That you're a God who is full of grace and that you are one who will uh, be able to, through your Son, be able to forgive all our sins. And uh, we are thankful for uh, your Word that makes these things clear. As we look at the parables, we get pictures to better understand uh, certain truths in the, the Scripture. And so in our study this evening, help us to understand the true message of this parable and uh, rejoice uh, greatly in that you're a God who forgives sin. this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you grabbed a sheet on the way in, hopefully you did, this is going to help you in the study here this evening, and in your Bibles, uh, you need to find Luke chapter 7. Uh, We're not going anywhere else uh, this evening. Uh, Look at other passages. We'll just solely be in Luke 7 here this evening in our study in the parable. One of the things, hopefully, as we go along and just looking at these parables that you'll figure out is that anytime time we look at a parable, we're probably going to look at the surrounding context. Okay? Because that is going to oftentimes be the key in you understanding what the parable's about. Now, this parable is a little easier because the Lord does kind of hint at what he was getting at. Uh, you get the, the reason that he gives it at the end. Uh, But there is some things in the context beforehand that will help get you to the point of understanding why this parable of the two debtors suddenly shows up. And so what we're going to do here is is starting off, we're not going to go through the whole chapter. I'm going to ask you for some answers here as you just kind of look generally at Luke chapter 7. I want to first of all say this. What uh, in Luke 7 in the context are the two miracles that have taken place early on, okay, first basically 20 verses, there's two miracles, What? what's one of them? Okay, widow's son is raised from the dead, okay, that is one of them, uh, that is by some people's estimation... <clears throat> the greatest miracle, because you're raising somebody back to life that's dead, that has no life, uh, that this is a miracle that's probably greatest of the Lord's. I'm going to say there's one more in this chapter that's even greater, but uh, it's kind of hidden. But what's the other one that you find here? Okay, the centurion's servant is healed. Uh, This one's interesting because uh, here you have the Lord healing at a distance. Okay, the centurion being a uh a, a, an officer realizes that his voice uh has the ability to cause things to happen at long distance uh he realizes that the lord's got other things to do and he says don't come and uh, all you have to do is say the word and uh, then you have uh, the lord saying the word he comes back and realizes the servant has been healed Okay, this is um, a miracle of just showing that God can heal at a distance. He doesn't have to be near, though he's near all the time. Uh, he doesn't have to be near uh, to heal. Now, I'm going to say this. There's a third miracle in all of this that's going to be hidden in uh, this chapter, and it's the greatest one, and it's the person that a person can have their sins what? Forgiven, Forgiven that person can be saved. That's the greatest miracle, okay? These people were raised from the dead, but they went back and died again. The greatest miracle is that you have a person who's an enemy of God who suddenly is able to live forever with God. Uh, but that's a side note. So there's two miracles. So you have these miracles taking place, kind of building up. Then right after this, you have a situation. starts in uh, Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 19. Uh, John calls two of his disciples. And what he does is he has his disciples come, and what he asks is this. He's in prison. So I I tend to think at this point that maybe John is more discouraged than anything because he's been preaching, he's preparing the way for the king, make straight the way, he's declaring repentance, uh, and he's in prison now and there's no kingdom that has been set up yet and he's kind of going, hmm, maybe I was wrong on this. Even though I saw everything at the baptism and everything, maybe I was wrong. Maybe Jesus isn't who he said he is. And so he sends his disciples and says, Okay, John has a question. Are you the one, or are we supposed to look for somebody else? And Jesus' response, and I'll just give it in my paraphrase here, is he, he says, Okay, look around. And so they look around, and there's all these people that are being healed lepers, paralyzed. Uh, you have people who are blind, demon possessed. Uh, he's healing all of them in mass. he says now you go back and tell john that all these people are being healed and the gospel is being preached to the poor so the disciples go away and it leads to a discussion where jesus says who do you think john the baptist is okay here's the discussion who is john john the baptist and who is jesus in comparison to him you know, did you go out to see a man in soft clothing no you didn't because john the baptist we ha- he's one of the only people we have described in the new testament was wearing as wearing a a clothing made out of animal f- fur basically it's not fur itself it's actually long hair that was weaved together and he's in this uncomfortable warm outfit uh in a very hot climate uh, he wears a big leather belt the uh, Lord says, Did you go out to see somebody who was shaken by the wind? And the answer is no, John didn't get shaken by the wind. In fact, he's declaring all sorts of things about people when they come out. He's not bending to the wind of public opinion. And Jesus then makes uh, this statement, <clears throat> verse number 31. Well, excuse me, go back to verse 29. When Jesus talks about John the Baptist being the greatest of the prophets, verse 29, he says, all the people that heard him and the publicans, so the tax collectors, justified God being baptized with the the baptism of John. But the Pharisees, lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, not being baptized by him. You have a whole bunch of people that heard John's message that they need to repent and they're gladly doing this. Even publicans, the worst in society, are, are, are accepting repentance. The Pharisees are going, no, eh, we don't need it. We don't need baptism. We don't need to repent. So the Lord then says, verse 31, Lord said, where shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? Verse 32, they're likened to children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, saying, we have piped unto you, and you've not danced. We've mourned to you, and you've not wept. So basically he's saying, you know, you, you're talking to us as prophets and you're going, you know, you weren't happy with us when we were happy. You weren't sad with us when we were sad. You know, you're, you're just, you know, you don't, you don't have touch of what's going on in society. Verse 33, Jesus says, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, he hath a devil. You know, this guy's out in the wilderness, he never associates with people, doesn't go to feasts, doesn't do this type of thing. You know what? He's, got, he's crazy. He's demon-possessed. On the other hand, verse 34, the Son of Man is coming, eating and drinking, and ye saw, and behold, a gluttonous man, or, and behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Here you got a man who goes to feasts, parties, And they're calling him a glutton, wine-bibber, friend of publicans and sinners. They're going, oh, well, he shouldn't be doing that. So on one side of their mouth, they're saying, John doesn't go to any feasts or anything like that. On the other side, they're upset that Jesus is going to feasts, which is ironic because you look at the story that's coming next, and Jesus is invited to a feast by a Pharisee. That's the irony that start off the whole thing is that they're upset that Jesus is going to feast and the Pharisees don't like that and here you have a Pharisee who's inviting Jesus to a feast. So you have that going on in the story uh, and so that's the the thing like this and that's why at the end of your notes you have the the discussion, who's John the Baptist in relation to John and Jesus, unlike John, is a glutton, drunk friend of sinners. He goes to feast, that's a horrible thing and then you have this Pharisee that goes, hey, come to my feast. So the story is laid out this way and this is the immediate context and this is why uh, it helps you to understand this parable of the two debtors verse 36, one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to meat. Behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she saw that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. So here's something you need to start off with when it comes to this feast. It just says that Jesus comes to the feast and sits down. And there's not something that would have been very common courtesy for anybody attending a feast. There's three things that you could typically expect, sort of like our culture, when you have guests come into your house. Okay, especially in this time of the season, they come into your house and what do you typically offer? Can I take your coat? You know, and usually the question gets asked, uh, should I take my shoes off or is it okay to wear them? And you get that question answered and whatever else, and then hey, have a seat here. I mean, this is all common courtesy for any guests you typically have in your house. Back in this culture, typical of what you would have had if you came to a feast. One, if you came into the household, there would be a basin for washing your feet. At least that would be offered to you. Now, if it was a rich person, they would have a servant there with a wash basin and a cloth, and they would wash your feet. But at least a basin of water to wash your feet that you're allowed to wash your feet in second thing that you would get, be given uh is uh is it says there in your notes oil to moisturize your face and hands okay uh, you have people that are walking in dusty ground that's why you haven't washed their feet but you think about this a hot dry arid environment you come in from being outside and they would have some oil, olive oil there that you would rub your hands in and put on your face and it would be something to help moisturize your face They understood that type of thing. You would be given this, okay? Uh, I was thinking about this. It's uh, when you talk about uh, in Psalm 23, where you have the shepherd, the whole shepherd psalm, and it says this, he anointeth my head with oil. Well, that's the the idea. You come in from the outside, and you've got this oil that's there uh, to help refresh you. The third thing that you would have uh, in this culture is that you would be greeted at the door, and you'd be greeted with a kiss, Okay, this is a European type kiss where you, know, you make a noise by the ear or whatever you know, uh, and that type of thing. Uh, very common in the culture back then, the Roman culture and otherwise. But this is uh, what you would expect. When Jesus comes in, none of this is given to him. He just sits down. And what you would have had was a feast table. It would have been a low table that was probably a couple of tables connected. And you would have had what we would have called benches or couches going away from this. And when people came in to eat at a feast like this, they would lean on their left elbow with their legs extended down the couch. They would reach out and grab things with their right hand. Very typical of the day. You read all these stories of Jesus eating and these feasts and whatever. This is what's happening. The Lord at Last Supper, this is what's going on. You have a room full of people going around and some of them can't hear the conversation because they're behind the Lord because he's leaning on his left arm and he's talking to people on the right. So you wanted to be on the right hand of the chief person because you could hear them and hear everything going on. So uh, the feet extended behind them. And What we have here is that it's a great feast because it's open for the public to see the grand hospitality of the host, though they did not partake. Uh, This is probably done either in a large room, in a house, or if it was a Roman-style house, it's done in the courtyard where you would have columns and people could stand on the outside looking into the courtyard and see all that's going on. And what this was done, uh, why they did this is so that you could show off the grandness of who you are and the gracious host that you are for the people that's able. You could be spectators and watch and it was expected that this would happen uh and even if you were inside a very large room you'd have people lining the outside of that room that weren't guests at the feast but would be there just to see what's going on this is normal kind of it's weird you know i why would i want to go to a party and go there and not get a single thing from it watching everybody out but this was this was just kind of the thing you know, I guess it was entertainment, you know, it was before TV and, you know, if it was at night, you know, somebody else is burning candles and torches, we'll go see what's going you know, whatever the case is, okay? So that's what's going on here in this. So to think that suddenly this woman enters into the room and you're just like, how did she get in? Because anybody could come in. It was just part of what went on uh, in this situation. What you have with this woman is that uh, we know several things about her, is that she's a great sinner. We're not told what she is and what her reputation is, but you have, you know individuals like the woman at the well who's known for her great immorality, five husbands and not living with the one who is, you know a husband. Uh, she's just, you know that type of person. I don't know what her sin is, but it's known in the community, and, you know, she's a great sinner. Um, with this. She washed Jesus' feet with her tears, with ointment, and with hair. Okay, as we have here, guests reclined on, the left side, on their left side with feet away from the table. So she's at the end of this couch, and what she does is that she washes. I mean, this is, you know, kind of if you just think is gross. She's washing her, her, his feet with her tears, okay? And she's taking her hair and wiping off his dirty feet. Along with that, she's pouring not ointment of olive oil, okay, this is not olive oil she's pouring on here. She's got an alabaster box of ointment, so the alabaster box would indicate that this is a very uh, expensive type of perfume, ointment, and she's pouring this out on Jesus' feet. You know, you pour it on his head, you know, you know, that's okay. You pour it on his feet, you know, it's like a... And she's wiping his feet with her hair, Shed tears and ointment, and wiping off the excess and the dirt with her hair. Now, what we may not understand, but people in the culture would have understood having lived back then with the Pharisees, the Pharisees had several rules. <laughs> if you didn't know that, they have multiple rules, uh, many, 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 many rules. Um, I will make this side note Pharisees weren't always the bad guy. Because the Pharisees, their name by its name means separated ones. The idea was is that they were going to do what God said. Problem is is that when they were trying to follow what God said, they put up protections around what God said. Here's my rules and here's what I've got displayed. And they set up extra boundary line fences. And then they set up extra boundary line fences and more boundary line fences around what uh, God wanted. And pretty soon, those boundary fences were more important than what the Word of God said. We looked last week where the Lord is uh, going after the Pharisees, and he says, have you not read, I'd rather have mercy than sacrifice? Listen, I don't care about your ceremonies or whatever. I want an attitude of the heart. That's what I really want. So, you know, this is something that the Pharisees had. They had a whole bunch of rules, and there's at least as you read uh, through the notes there, there are at least two different things that the Pharisee would have just had his mind go, you know, I ah, can't believe this is going on. One is, is that the woman would have unbound her hair in public. They had a rule about this, that women were not to unbind their hair uh, in public. Do it in your house, whatever, but uh, you don't go out in public and take the, your hair and unbind it and whatever, and she would have had to do that to wipe the feet of Jesus. So that's one thing that you have there—that uh, she unbound her hair in public—and the Pharisees had this rule. Okay, I, I'll give you a prayer that they would pray. Here's a prayer that the Pharisees would pray: God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile. Maybe they would say heathen, or actually they would use the word dog. Okay, we're thankful that they're not goyim. Okay, they're dogs. Uh, I'm thankful I'm not a dog. I'm thankful I'm not a publican, and I'm thankful I'm not a woman. Okay? That was their thinking. They would pray this, and they had a rule that if a woman touched somebody, they would become ceremonially defiled. This isn't from Scripture. They they made this up. So if a woman was to touch a man, you're ceremonially unclean can't go through all the ceremonies you have and you can't go and officially worship and all this because now you're unclean there's no rule in the bible about this okay there's nothing on this that says this is the case there's no laws in leviticus that you suddenly missed here that's that's not the case The Pharisees had come up with this. And so for him, he's seeing this, that he believed for a woman to touch uh, Jesus would cause ceremonial defilement besides the fact that he's sitting here and he is saying in his own mind in verse 39, if this man were a prophet, some have suggested this, that he's saying, if this man was the prophet... Remember, that's the discussion is Jesus the prophet in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses said, there's a prophet like unto me coming after me. You need to hear him. Okay? And Jesus already made Messiah claims at this point and claims that he could be this prophet that was Moses was uh, pointing to. And so what this man's going is, if he's the Messiah, if he's the prophet, he can't figure out that this woman's a great sinner and he's allowing her to touch, touch him. He is not the Messiah. He can't be he's already made that up in his mind so that's that's all that is going on that's the pre-context to everything but you kind of go this isn't the type of feast that you're you know it's not going well okay you ever had a meal like this where you've sat down and there's already tension you know you ever had a meal like this you go no yes you have okay you've had a meal where there's great deal of tension there and you're eating and that's kind of what's gone on here already and then this happens, and the Pharisee's really upset, but he says all of this in his head. And you see what it says in verse number 40? Okay, we had verse 39 here. Verse 40, Jesus answering said, I mean, this man's saying this all in his head, and then Jesus answers what's in his head. <laughs> uh, that's the humor of this, is the man, you know, I'm not gonna say anything, and the Lord's like, okay, let me answer what you just said. Okay, and here's what he says. And we know this man's name. His name's Simon. I'll tell you why I think he's announced here. It's just my opinion at the end why his name is actually given here. Uh, Jesus answering, said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. Verse 41, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50 and when they had nothing to pay he frankly forgave them both tell me therefore which of them will love him most simon answered and said i suppose that he to whom he forgave most and he said unto him thou hast rightly judged you came to a right conclusion you got you got what i said right you you know you, you got the answer okay you figured it out So here you have this this story, two debtors. For us, we don't really understand it because we're not used to the money of that day, but a pence uh, is oftentimes a translation of a word that uh, is a denarii, okay? A denarii was what you would get paid for a day's work. It's a day's wage is what it is. So if you were to go and do work someplace, it would be typically given to you, I'm going to give you, a denarii. And in Jewish culture, they paid you the day you did your work. So here it is. You get this wage. So when you read this, you have one man who has 500 denarii that he owes, another one who owes 50 denarii. You just kind of work this out in your head. Okay, you know, taking off, you know, one day at least, maybe two. Generally, we're talking about somebody who owes two months wages versus somebody who you owes what? Two years of wages, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's how the Jews would view this. They'd go, oh, well, this is a person that owes two months of work. This is a person who owes two years of full work. And you realize this, full work, you're, you're paying this back. You're not getting any wages because you're giving your wages away for that day. Um, two years of this. Okay? That's as people were thinking, they'd go, wow, you know, two years' wages uh, to have that suddenly forgiven? And as you read your text, it's a little bit hard to see this, but it says this in verse 42, for no reason, this money lender, and it says that he frankly forgave them. That word frankly is a word that is connected to our word Grace. Okay, that it's the, the Greek word behind it is the word charis or charismata. Uh, it's the idea of a grace gift, something that is given for no, you know, no. I don't say no purpose, uh, no reason. It hasn't been earned. This man freely gives, forgives. I, I think of this now, and uh, this is going to cost this man something. He now suddenly has lost uh, two years of wages that he was supposed to have given to him, two months' wage. Uh, it's, it's a great cost to him. I think about this in our time period right now where the whole thing is, hey, maybe we can have all our student debts forgiven. You're like, well, wait a second. The people who gave out those loans, you know, how, how, aren't they going to lose something here? You know, they've given this away and suddenly the debt's forgiven because the government says it's forgiven. And oh, well, okay. Um, money lenders don't do this. But in this case, he's owed money and he goes, I'm going to give you a gift you don't deserve. You don't have to pay the debt, it's cleared at cost to myself. Now, the question that is asked and the, the man gets it right, who would have the greatest joy? I mean, that's, that's the question you need to answer. Who has the greatest joy? Okay, the one with the greatest debt, the greatest thing that's been forgiven. So you go, okay, what is the Lord specifically getting at here? okay. Let's look at his explanation because he has uh, a statement afterwards uh, that's a part of the context. And he says here in verse number 44, Jesus here and he turns and, and uh, directs attention to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with her tears and hath wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint. But this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins are forgiven, which are many, or her sins which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that can forgive sins also? Forgetting the Lord can read their mind. Uh, And he said unto the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. So you go, what is the lesson from this? And you've got this in italics in this. What's the lesson from this parable that the Lord is trying to teach to this Pharisee? It's just simply this. The one who has the greatest sense of sinfulness. Okay, the greatest sense of sinfulness. Okay, I didn't put the greatest sinfulness. The greatest sense of sinfulness has the greatest joy at forgiveness. What what you have here is that as you look at this is it's not that the Lord is necessarily going after the fact that there are greater sins and lesser sins and all of this. That's that's not necessarily what the Lord's saying. You know, I I can forgive great sins, I can forgive little sinners. Because if we understand theology of the Lord is that every sin is equal in the sight of God. Sins of omission... You go, what's that? Failing to do what you're supposed to be doing, which the Pharisee had done a whole bunch of things he should have done and didn't. Or whether it's sins of commission, which are doing sins that are obvious and open, which this woman seemed to be doing because of her reputation in the community. Whatever the case may be, every sin is an offense against God, and it's a great enough offense for us to be sent and separated from God forever. So that's not what the Lord's saying here, is that I've got the ability to forgive great sin and small amounts of sin. It's it's looking at the response of the person who has the greatest amount of sin forgiven, and their response, okay? Uh, And so, you look at this, the woman responded in your notes there, the woman responded out of love because of the forgiveness Jesus offered to sinners. She loves God because God first loved her. I don't know where this woman had heard this, but you have in the story previous to this that Jesus is saying people responded to the message of John and they rejoiced including publicans, tax collectors, rejoiced at the message of John. I'm sure this woman had heard the message of John and of Jesus and realized here's an individual that says that God will forgive sinners who come in repentance. She's heard this message, and she's responded, and we'll find out here in a second. It's in faith that she responds to this message. She believes it. And now that she's experienced the love of God, she's reflecting that love back to, in this case, God himself, to Jesus. I mean, this woman responds out of love. And understand this, her works did not earn forgiveness. I mean, the Lord makes this very clear. The Pharisees, always looking for more works to do to be approved by God. And the Lord makes very clear, she wasn't forgiven because of her works. She was forgiven on the basis of her faith. It was the works were expression of her faith and love. This is why Jesus declared that her sins were forgiven and that her faith had saved her. He makes this clear. It's not this woman's great sacrifice that I'm just suddenly forgiving her sins. No, she's already had faith in the message that I've already proclaimed, that I'm offering forgiveness of sins that God can forgive sins. Uh, And she understands that. And so you kind of go, okay, so this woman has a great sense of her sinfulness. She realizes that she doesn't deserve any kind of salvation and God has done this. Her response is great. The problem is you got an individual on the other side who's sitting here going, huh, I don't have any sins. Sort of like last week where we looked at this, the Lord said, I came to heal the sick, not uh, the healthy. You know, I'm a physician that comes to those that are, well, weak, not to those that are healthy. And he was saying to the Pharisees that they thought they were okay. When people are okay, don't need a doctor. So why wasn't um, <clears throat> this Simon really excited about the Lord being in his house and showing him the hospitality that's there? Because he's thinking, I don't have sin. So he's not responding, he's not showing any joy that Jesus is there, he's not happy about it because he doesn't think he's a sinner but here you've got one whose sins she knows have been forgiven and they're great and she's responding in a great deal of joy. Now this morning we we were talking through this and we had the the question come up later Um, well we, we had the initial discussion you know for me I was saved at the age of five in church. I'd always been in church. And I realized I was a sinner. Okay? You know, I'd come to that conclusion. But I can't say, you know, initially my joy, I mean, I was excited and told people, but I have seen people who've gotten saved later in life, and you just know what their story has been. It's been a train wreck of a life and they get saved, and they're all excited about their salvation, and they are overjoyed at this, and you go, why? Because they recognize their sinfulness, and that God forgives sin, and they have great joy, whereas some of us, you know, we get saved, okay, you know what, the Lord did something, and we really don't have that joy, and and the discussion we had, though, later was this, That over time, do we not, if we really are serious Christians, begin to have the joy about our salvation, hopefully, that equals the person who realized they were a great sinner? That in reviewing the gospel over and over again, we suddenly realize, I I was really in trouble. Um, We have times to remind ourselves of our great sinfulness. You go, occasions, we just had one this last week on Sunday. What's the Lord's Supper supposed to do? Remind us of our sinfulness that it put Jesus on the cross. But this Jesus who shed his blood and that he had his body broken is going to come again because he said uh, that you do this till I come, till I show up. You do show the Lord's death till he comes. And, and the fact is, is that every time I do this, I realize just reviewing my week, what a great sinner I am. You know, the more you're saved, you realize how sinful you are. If you're truly examining yourself, you're just kind of going, and the Lord's going to still be faithful to his promises and rescue me, that he's going to give me full forgiveness of sins in Christ, that one day I'll stand before him sinless, not having a single charge against me. Does that not bring joy? Now, you know, some of us, you know, joy, it's, it's, it, we won't see it. You know, I break into a smile and, you know, yeah, that, that's just the, way, the nature of who we are. But the truth is, is that we see this when somebody who's gratefully sinful gets saved. Uh, and you know, those of us, okay, you know, yeah, I'm a sinner and that. And but I, you know, my sin will send me to hell and whatever. But we, you know, kind of not that bad. We, we kind of have the attitude of the Pharisees. The answer is, hey, you're just as bad as they are. Your sin would have sent you to hell just like them. Didn't matter how many sins you committed. You ought to be joyful, but we do understand what the Lord's getting at. The one with the greatest sense of guilt over sins has the greatest joy when the forgiveness is given. And you see this. You end the story, and I, I do find this just kind of a, a nice side note at the end. The Lord says to him, thy faith has saved thee, in verse number 50, and then he says, go in peace. And I have this, with her sins forgiven, she could enter into peace that's what it says there it's not just go in peace you know you go out in peace no he's saying this go into peace enjoy the realm of peace and you say what's true peace well true peace starts with that you have peace with god through jesus christ so you can have peace you don't have the the stirring of soul anymore that you have this guilt before god that can't be taken care of and you're in the realm of peace And then a person who's in this realm can also then get along with people. They can be peacemakers, as uh, you find uh, in one of Jesus' sermons. Uh, You can have an individual who's a peacemaker who not only has peace, but can bring peace to other individuals and have a, a relation with others that you couldn't have otherwise. And then you just think about this, that a person who's at peace with God also has peace in the soul. And, uh, and he's just simply saying to her, go and enjoy being in the realm of peace. And uh, for her, uh, you know, I don't know the story. Now you say, okay, you said something earlier on. Why do you think the Pharisee was named? My, my, my opinion, you know, we'll find out when we get to heaven. I think he got the message because most oftentimes when the Lord's talking to Pharisees, he, they don't have them named until they, unless they came to know Christ can you think of some Pharisees? Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, those are the only ones that you can think of named during the time of Jesus. Uh, you have the Apostle Paul who was a Pharisee, okay, we know who he is. The only one I can think of that was probably not saved was a guy by the name of Gamaliel who Paul was trained by. But I do think that maybe Simon, you know, we may see him in heaven. Don't know. It's just my, my opinion. I'm, I'm throwing that in there. Uh, it's not normal for you to have the individual who's the bad guy named. Always uh, in these stories. And I tend to think that maybe Simon did understand that, yeah, who knows. And realize this, there are about 11 Simons in the New Testament too. So, you know, eh, there's a whole bunch of Simons that you have listed there. So, yeah. Any questions on this? I mean, any, any thoughts? I like the smaller classroom on Wednesday mornings because we're in this classroom and people feel a little better about asking questions. We're in this big room here. It's like, you know, the questions go higher, you know, whatever, you know, and you have to be more bold. Yes? Yeah. Amen. It's a good passage. Reminded of our own own, uh, yeah, own sinfulness and our great God, but anyone else? Okay, well good so hey you, you've survived another parable. It makes sense, you know they get harder <coughs> <laughs> they get harder uh, and uh, we're going to hit those once we start hitting into matthew where the lord or Matthew thirteen where the Lord starts telling a whole bunch at once, um, and uh, they get a little harder to decipher but